Hello and welcome to the Muni Lowdown. My name is Paul Graves and I'm the managing editor for Debtwire Municipals. Joining me today are my colleagues, Seth Brumby, the deputy editor, Mary Ellen Ty, the assistant editor, and our head of research, Greg Clark. Well, it's so good. To, I haven't been here for weeks. We're happy to have you back, Paul. You don't really sound that happy, but okay. Well, no, we, we actually discovered that in your absence, the best person to take over is Mary Ellen. I'm glad we, we made that discovery. So there's a lot to talk about today. I guess the first thing, speaking of Mary Ellen, why don't we get started with it's Election Day next week. And Mary Ellen, what does that mean if it's Election Day? Thanks, Paul. It means bond authorization votes. What everybody was looking to talk about. I'm sure everyone is excited. So what's happening with these bond measures next week? Well, the biggest one that we're looking at or the one that we've been talking about the most, is a $1 billion pension obligation bond coming up in Houston. As everyone knows, they've been dealing with hurricane recovery. It'll be interesting to see where that goes on the ballot. But Texas has um, several, three, three more school districts that have ballot measures of more than $500 million. So it's going to be a big dollar-wise voting day in Texas on Tuesday. Dallas has a big one, don't they? Yes, Dallas has um, a little over $500 million for street improvements. You know, what's interesting is that with the Houston situation, because of Hurricane Harvey, there's an expectation of a low turnout, but it's not, based on our reporting, it's not quite clear whether or not that low turnout will mean that the pension obligation measure, and as well as a general obligation bond measure of a smaller amount, I believe like $400 million, but it's not clear whether or not they're going to do better or worse because of the smaller turnout. Is that going to bring out a concentration of people that are for it, or is it more likely to bring out a concentration of people that are against it? So I guess we'll find that out in a couple of days in terms of next week. But moving on, obviously a subject of ongoing conversation is Puerto Rico. And there's a couple of court hearings that are ongoing and coming up. Seth, why don't you fill us in and maybe start with what's been in the news a lot, whitefish, you know, and the upcoming hearing about that. Yeah, the whitefish saga, just very quickly, the Puerto Rico Electric Power Authority awarded a $300 million contract to Whitefish Energy back in mid-October to help repair the island's grid, which was destroyed during Hurricane Maria. It's a very controversial contract. Uh, it's a lot of money. Uh, it also has some kind of cloud of nepotism over it because Whitefish is based in the same town where Robert Zinke, uh, the Department of Interior Secretary, lives and is from. So people sort of thought that maybe there was some preference there. Uh, there's a whole host of other questions around the contract. The contract is now squarely in front of Judge Laura Taylor Swain, who is presiding over the Commonwealth's and PREPA's uh, restructuring. Basically, the Unsecured Credit Committee for the Commonwealth filed a motion last week basically seeking discovery of the contract, and Judge Swain uh, agreed to actually hear the motion. Objections to the motion are due on November 6th, but whether, whether there are objections or not, there will be a hearing of it uh, on November 13th, which is two days before the next omnibus hearing, which is November 15th, and that'll be the first omnibus hearing that we've had since Hurricane Maria. So we're still playing catch-up in the restructuring, and not only that, there's a whole lot of things that the restructuring is now having to deal with that it didn't have to deal with before, thanks to Hurricane Maria. 
Steph, there's a hearing coming up today, isn't there, in Boston? Yeah, right. so th- this week uh, on Thursday, uh, there's um, a separate matter not related to Whitefish. Basically, a group of hedge funds led by Altair Investments, I believe the name is. Uh, this group also includes Oak Tree, which is a very well-known uh, distressed hedge fund. They are investors in about $3 billion in pension obligation bonds issued by the Puerto Rico Employee Retirement System. Uh, they've long contended, like a lot of creditors in the Puerto Rico credit complex, that they have a secured lien on government contributions to the employee retirement system, and they would like to enforce that lien. It's not exactly clear uh, whether or not they do. Obviously, ERS and the other uh, bankrupt states for Puerto Rico don't believe that those bondholders have a lien. So on Thursday, Judge Dean, who is, I believe, out of the, the your area, Paul, out in Boston, is going to hold a hearing regarding the scope of discovery that the two parties will engage in as they litigate over uh, the security for bondholders. And the next item was we had our first oversight board hearing since the hurricane, Seth. Can you fill us in on what happened there? Yeah, there. I, th- I think the big takeaway is something that the, the governor has long forecasted, so it really wasn't a whole lot of news for the oversight board, that they expect tax revenues to drop 50% uh, in fiscal year 17. Um, I mean, that's that's enormous. I mean, they're already they're barely pulling in nine billion anyway. And with the loss of 50 percent of their tax revenue, um, this has dramatic implications for the island's ability to operate, uh, for their ability to service their communities, much less to provide any kind of reliable recovery for bondholders. So that was the big takeaway, at least for me. I don't know if you had anything else to add to that, Mary Ellen. I was going to say is that I was um, listening in on Banco Popular's earnings call earlier this week as well, and they mentioned that, you know, right now they're only running at 60% of their card transactions. So, you know, normally they're, they're doing half the volume of credit and debit card transactions, which in Puerto Rico means that there's probably a lot of sales tax money that's not being collected or accounted for. Yeah, and then, of course, those banks aren't getting those fees either. So, you know, it certainly has a way of the restructuring and the natural disaster has a way of sprawling out outside of municipal problems and certainly squarely into corporate ones, too. And we have one more Puerto Rico story to talk about, and that's the University of Puerto Rico. Some of the good news for students, but maybe not so good news for the institution. Yeah, so a lot of Puerto Rico students have at least been offered and maybe are considering taking classes at stateside schools. Some of them are, some schools like Brown University are doing um, full rides for 50 students for a semester and other schools are allowing students to pay in-state tuition, which is pulling a lot of students potentially away from the University of Puerto Rico. If you look back to um, 2005 when there was Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans, the local university there saw enrollment fall 20%, and it wasn't until 2011 that those numbers got back up. Puerto Rico is fighting an additional headwind from the hurricane in that there just is already people leaving, and this is potentially exacerbating that. Yeah, the, the financial crisis and the you know, decade-long recession already had a huge impact on demographics. I remember a couple of years ago I was over in Boston speaking about Puerto Rico and at the law school there, and there was about three students from Puerto Rico who were listening in, and, and I remember I, I asked them if they had planned on returning to Puerto Rico, and none of them had any strong plans to do so. That said, they didn't commit to say that they were going to stay in Boston, but there really wasn't much for them to do going back to the island. There really wasn't an economy that they could participate in. 
And then now, you know, I really appreciate, you know, Florida, Louisiana, and New York stepping up and allowing in-state tuition for these students. But at the same time, that exacerbates the flight out of the island. And that's also bad for Governor Rosseo, UPR, and everybody, all the other stakeholders. Because UPR has two types of bonds outstanding, and this won't help them either. Yeah, I think it's interesting that of the universities, Tulane, the New Orleans one, is the one that said that if you pay tuition, they're going to redirect it back to UPR. So obviously that was a big problem for Tulane when they had everyone leave during their hurricane. Oh, so they so basically if, if a student goes there, uh, Tulane is going to reimburse the tuition that they pay the institute back to UPR? They're going to, you will just pay your UPR tuition and Tulane won't collect anything. Interesting. Okay. I mean, I guess that that's certainly good for UPR, but again, you know, you want to have the people physically there. Um, you know, they they pay rents, they pay um, mortgages if they own a house. You know, they're eating there, they're paying the taxes down there. I think that was kind of the larger um, the larger backdrop to the demographic issues. Yes, and one of the other issues is just any kind of break from being at school in Puerto Rico probably diminishes the chances over the long term that they're going to actually come back. Uh, to the University of Puerto Rico. So we'll see how that continues to play itself out. But let's take this mainland or stateside, Greg, and talk a little bit about what's going on with uh, things in in our power sector. Thanks, Paul. We haven't talked about this in a little bit, in a little while, but Westinghouse Corp., which is a uh, subsidiary of Toshiba, uh, declared bankruptcy earlier this year, which then put into question continuing construction of four nuclear facilities, two in South Carolina and two in Georgia. Mary Ellen will talk about the ones in Georgia in a minute. But in South Carolina, the two utilities, there was one publicly owned, municipally owned utility and one investor owned utility that joined forces to build two nuclear plants. The investor owned utility is South Carolina Electric and Gas its parent is called SCANA, which I found out is not an acronym. It's taken from the letters that form South Carolina. If you write it down, you'll see it right away. Sandy Cooper is also known as the uh, South Carolina Public Service Authority. In any event, they stopped construction. SCANA and, San- and Sandy Cooper stopped construction on their plants on July 31st because of cost overruns and uncertainties regarding the plants. There was then some memos that came out from their consultants that indicated that about a year prior to that point, Sandy Cooper and Scanna were aware of problems with facility construction that were much larger than they let on. So both utilities now are under investigation by a federal grand jury, the Securities and Exchange Commission, the South Carolina Attorney General's Office, and some other parties. And the governor of South Carolina, Henry McMaster, is supposedly in talks with different investor-owned utilities uh, regarding the sale of Santee Cooper. So that's, it's, it's a mess. I don't know how else to put it. Bankruptcy is just bad news in general. I mean, you know, I, I have to admit, restructuring can give you kind of a rebirth to your industry, but it just goes to show you, particularly in the municipal world, that when you have a restructuring, it's it just the ripple effects can go out so wide and affect even investment-grade credits like a Santee Cooper or a Scan. I mean, it's happening in Georgia, right? 
Yeah, the Georgia issue is really becoming sort of a reflection of South Carolina. So Georgia decided to continue with their plants. There are four partners, and one of the partners, the Municipal Electric Authority of Georgia, has sort of split its risk with the JEA, the Jacksonville Electric Authority, and a a third partner. And the JEA has said that it doesn't think it's prudent to continue with the plants. And because of this division of risk, it doesn't really appear to have much of a voting step um, voting power, but if you listen to, or if you remember what Greg said maybe two minutes ago in South Carolina, there was a question a year before they decided to discontinue, and so there's concerns that JEA raising this question now means that, you know, this is the time when they should have quit if they're unable to complete it. They, they could also try to litigate their way out of their contract, even though they don't have a vote whatever contract they have with uh, MEAG, Municipal Electric Authority of Georgia, there's nothing to stop JEA from trying to get themselves out of that contract. You know, in in the realm of the bankruptcy world, uh, in my experience, if you're able to point out that a corporation has entered the zone of insolvency without ever having to prove it, but if you sit there and say, you know what, something is wrong with this deal, there's too much leverage here, or we feel like this can impact the value of the subsidiaries, if you raise that question before a restructuring happens, people can point back to that moment where somebody raised concerns about solvency and say, you know what, every decision after that could be subject to some kind of fraudulent transfer or preference because you should have known that what you were doing was eroding value for your stakeholders. So, I mean, JEA might not have voting power, but they certainly have nuisance power. Definitely. Um, it, didn't, it didn't come up. Uh, Southern, which is one of the partners on the project, had an earnings call this week, and it didn't come up on their call. They're mostly focused on things like securitizing their loan guarantees from Toshiba, which we also saw in South Carolina, and whether or not they're going to get additional federal loan guarantees. All right. Steph, I must say I'm very impressed. Zone of insolvency. That's very nicely done. I like that. Well, I, actually, that's not me. That's from, um, I can't remember which circuit court, but uh, there's a story a long time that I wrote about a home builder in Florida. It was called Tusa. And I had pointed out when Tusa was issuing some loans to pay for the liabilities of a defunct joint venture that the loans was going to push the company into the zone of insolvency. And TUSA was a mess in terms of its restructuring, but eventually people pointed back to that debt issuance as TUSA's entrance into the zone of insolvency, and that's what essentially allowed the court to unwind that transaction. Investors had to disgorge money. It was very nasty litigation. It had to go all the way up to an appeals court. So these things do have a way of mushrooming over time and getting particularly bitter. Well, maybe you didn't come up with the term, Seth, but you are definitely popularizing it. (laughs) That counts yeah. for more. Oh, that was a good thing. <laughs> That's for sure. So let's uh, move up the East Coast, Greg, and talk a little bit about the latest with the state of Connecticut and the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Connecticut finally passed the budget four months into fiscal year 18, which ends June 30th of 18. The uh, budget does not provide for higher rates on uh, major revenue sources such as the income tax. And it also has some things which I think bondholders and even and the public would, would probably like. They're going to try to control borrowing, establish a revenue cap, and provide monies for the state's rainy day fund. Connecticut is not out of the woods yet. They are losing some employers, 
and their funding, the funding ratios of their pension plans are very low. One's at 36%, one's at 56%. And uh, I think the type of, one of the things I'm predicting about states that have had a hard time adopting budgets this year is you're going to see the same thing next year. In other words, in June of calendar year 18, when they're getting together the, the fiscal year 19 budget, I think you're probably going to see the same thing for Connecticut, Pennsylvania, and, uh, and Illinois. But I digress. Why do you think the same thing's going to happen? Or what it, makes this year different than other years? Because the politics are not going to change appreciably, I don't think. And they're still going to have the same problems in terms of revenue growth. It's, it's a lot easier to agree on a budget when revenues are increasing. If revenues are stagnant and you have to make some tough choices, that's, that's when the legislatures and the governor frequently differ. Okay, let's drill down a little bit with the state of Connecticut and its capital city, Hartford. What's going on there, Greg? Well, fortunately, in, in the state budget, the, uh, the legislature and the governor provided $40 million in state aid to the city. $20 million of that amount is to be used to help the city pay debt service. Uh, despite the additional aid, the mayor of Hartford, Luke Bronin, continues to call for negotiations with bondholders and the possibility of a debt restructuring, implying that there's going to be some kind of principal haircut to bondholders. He has stepped away from the bankruptcy talk, but he's still adhering to the restructuring talk. So do you think they need to restructure? <laughs> I'm not sure. What do you think, Seth? Well, I asked first. What do you mean you're not sure? <laughs> I'm not sure because I'm not intimately acquainted with their budget. I don't know how many police they have, how many firemen they have, whether they have too many of either or both. Uh, I'm not sure exactly how they spend their money. And until you know that, it's hard to say whether there's room to cut the budget and therefore whether there's room to pay debt service as scheduled rather than abrogating some obligations. I, I remember at our conference out in Chicago, one of the panelists had talked about how Hartford is trying to avoid Detroit in the sense that it would enter or rather commit service level defaults as opposed to payment defaults on bond debt. Um, and, and the difference being that, you know, and I think we've talked about it before, your service level default is really are you able to serve your community? I mean, what's your response time for emergencies? Um, what's your student-teacher ratio in your public schools? You know, these things are service level defaults that Detroit went through for decades. And Hartford, this panelist noted, doesn't want to do that. It would much rather default, it seems, on debt than it would on commitments it has made to its constituents. So, you know, when, when I look at I guess Hartford's commitments, I see that its debt service payments are increasing from now up until I would say just 2020. I think they start to, I think they top off at 45 million over the next couple of years and then they steadily decrease. Um, and I think they get around to about 25 million 15 years out from now. And if, if Mayor Bronin really feels as though restructuring is necessary, um, that's, that's one expense that you can certainly take care of through Chapter 9, which is never easy, right. um, but it's easily identifiable. That, that was a very good point that I can't remember the panelists who made that point at, at that conference, but it's, it's an important concept. My only problem with it is that it is not a hard and fast rule. In other words, a service level default for somebody who lives in Beverly Hills is going to be a lot different than for somebody who lives in Hartford. 
Yeah, I would agree about that. I mean, the the concept of minimal cities, which I think grew out of that Southern California, where you have a very rich community, and therefore you don't need um, things like public libraries because you have access to books, and you don't need public parks because you probably have a big lawn. Um, you know, those kinds of things creates an idea where your government doesn't need to provide as much public service. Um, but you know, when you get to a city like maybe Hartford, where that might be all people have, um, that's that becomes a kind of a different equation. I, I was kind of thinking of something else. In other words, in Beverly Hills, if you call an ambulance, how long does it take it to get there? Maybe let's say let's assume five minutes. Mm -hmm. Whereas in Detroit, and before bankruptcy, it was thirty. Yeah. So if in Beverly Hills the time went to ten minutes, people would be upset. Whereas in Detroit, if it went to, from thirty to fifteen, they'd be thrilled. <laughs> So that, that, that's what I'm getting at is, is it's, it's kind of a, it depends on what you're used to. Okay, and let's, let's go back to Pennsylvania and Philadelphia School District, Greg. What's going on there? The schools in Philadelphia have been under state oversight. It's called the School Reform Commission since 2001. And the mayor of Philadelphia now is planning to reassert control over the schools with a new school board that would be selected by him and approved by the city council. It's, it's hard to say what exactly is behind this. There are some allegations. The, the mayor is saying that the School Reform Commission, also known as the SRC, has made for a system with no, no accountability and that there has been, there have been periods of financial stability and investment in schools followed by instability and uh, funding cuts. Whether or not local control rather than the school control is going to solve that problem, I don't know. Philadelphia has seen a big growth in charter schools in the last 10, 15 years. Some people are saying that the, that the SRC is favorable to charter schools, or I should say favors charter schools, other people are saying it's a trend that's happened nationwide anyway, and it really has nothing to do with the SRC. They also have huge infrastructure needs and funding needs. And I, I think if anyone is, is expecting a city takeover to cure the school's problems, I think that they are fooling themselves. I saw an interesting uh, tweet this week. Can't remember the gentleman's name. Um, I want to say it was Eric Kazetsky, but he was he remarked how Philadelphia is one of 400 some odd school districts in Pennsylvania, where the people that actually attend the school and the families that attend the school can't elect the leadership because it's done by the state. Um, so maybe in a return to the local level is 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 a good thing. Uh, maybe there's a little more accountability there, but that's that's pretty amazing that it's been under state oversight and people really haven't had to take responsibility or control over it. Yeah, the, the reason for the state oversight, as I recall, was that uh, there was financial distress. Okay, then. Well, I guess we'll wrap it there. It's been a very uh, jam-packed session today. want to thank everyone for joining us for the latest edition of the Muti Lowdown, and we'll talk to you next week.